Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. We are invited to gather, go, give, and grow together by the power of His Spirit. In today's episode, we begin a new series for the season of Advent entitled The Servant Songs. This sermon from Dr. Scott Osborne considers the true justice warrior. Isaiah chapter 42. And as you're turning to Isaiah chapter 42, I want to ask this question. What does Christmas mean to you? I'm not going to sing the song. Okay. Please? Yeah, not today. Another day. Um, Maybe at the end of the service, so you'll stick around a little bit longer. However, there is that famous Christmas song, and this is what Christmas means to me. And this morning, and over the next several weeks, I actually want to look at what Christmas means to Isaiah, and specifically in four particular passages in Isaiah, and we call these the servant songs. And I'm going to explain that in just a little bit. Okay, but here we well, we're, we're there, so just go back. What does Christmas mean to you? I don't know where you are in that, but as you can tell, front and center, Christmas for me means National Lampoon, right? Anyone seen it yet? If you, already, you've already seen Man, I am behind. But I was going to invite you all over, but I need to come to your house, apparently. But no, I don't know what Christmas means to you. If it's like the Christmas tree, the, the Christmas cookies. I, we were at a party last night. One of my friends handed me a cookie and says, this is Christmas in a cookie. And I went, it is. And it was that exact cookie right there. And I was like, that was... I, anyone make those throughout the year? That's just like, that is a Christmas cookie, right? Okay, before I like wax eloquent about a cookie and it's not even a Christmas cookie. Okay? Or, you know, I know it's hard for you to, and this is the one month and I live in Virginia and I'm like, why do I live in Virginia? But, you know, how many of you dream of a white Christmas? Okay, none of you? Come on. Yes. White Christmases are the best. Okay? And when you live in the snow capital of the entire country, you normally have a white Christmas called Syracuse, New York. The other 11 months, I'm glad I'm not there, you know? However, what I want to say is like, what is Christmas? And obviously as Christians, we're going to say all of that stuff up there is good. But as Christians, we're going to say, what is Christmas all about? Jesus. Okay, and I want to dig into that a little bit more this morning and over the next couple of weeks with you from Isaiah chapter 42 and answer the question, what does Christmas mean for us. In order to make this case of what Christmas actually means, I want to just state this over the next few weeks, is that Christmas, on the next slide, is all about the incarnation of the humble servants who came to make all things right. A few words there. Incarnation, uh, you see in the middle there that word carne, carne, carne asada, flesh, embodied. It, the word incarnation is that Jesus took on flesh. That he existed before Matthew chapter 1 and 2. And he existed eternally past with God the Father and God the Spirit. And he will continue to exist eternally into the future as well. But when Matthew 1 and 2 were, were actually depicted. He took on flesh. We call this the incarnation. And He came as a humble servant. 
in order to make all things right. To quote Sam, he came to make all sad things come untrue. Samwise Gamgee, Lord of the Rings. This is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all in their own ways, are picking up on, and they find their roots, many of them in Isaiah, and these servant songs. So what are these servant songs? Well, there are four times in Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah, that the word servant is used. And I have on the slide for you what these four servant songs are. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, you have this phrase, Here is my servant. And this is the particular passage that we're going to be looking at today. The one in whom I delight, I'll put my spirit on him and bring justice to the nations. Next week, depending on how fast I go today, but one day in the future, Isaiah 49 says, You are my servant Israel in whom I display my splendor. The third time this this unique indication of servant is used in Isaiah chapter 50. Who among you fears the Lord, the word of his servant? Let the one who walks in the dark, who has no lights, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on their God. And we'll see in Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 10, a third idea of a servant. In Isaiah chapter 52, leading in Isaiah chapter 53, probably the most famous servant song that Pastor Nate will be speaking on in a few weeks says, see, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. All of these songs, they are, in a sense, poetic in the Hebrew Scriptures. And we call them songs because they stand out from the text by the way they're written, what they're talking about. And they all, I'm going to give it away, refer to who? We say that because we live now. However, it wasn't always the case. In fact, in the early church, in Acts chapter 8, there is an Ethiopian official who probably became a Jew. He proselytized to the Jewish faith, and he left Ethiopia, and he went to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with all the Jews all over the world. Well, when he got there in Acts chapter 8, all of a sudden there was this new commotion going on within Jerusalem called the Way, the church. Peter, James, and John. And while he's up there, he hears about all these new things going on. I know it's weird, but news didn't travel very fast from Jerusalem, Ethiopia back then. When he got there, he found out probably all these new things. And on his way back, he's so curious, he begins reading the Old Testament. Because guess what? New Testament hadn't written yet. They were actually able to be Christians without New Testament. It's weird, I know. However, he began to read it. And didn't know what he was reading. And God sent, and remember who? A little Bible trivia for you today. A man named Philip. And this is what it says. And I have this on the screen for you, I believe. Then Philip, well, you got to have your magnifying glasses on, apparently. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. <laughs> How many of you would like to just walk up to a chariot and hear a man reading out loud some scroll? We'd be like, you are weird. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? <laughs> and this is like me when I read the Old Testament sometimes. How can I? Ever feel like the Ethiopian? Unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage that the eunuch was reading. And guess what he was reading? 
a passage from the fourth servant song, a passage from Isaiah chapter 53. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? And so the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, who is the prophet talking about, himself, Isaiah, or someone else? Tell me, please, who he's talking about. And Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. What we're going to come to see is that this isn't always obvious. Where we stand today, it's very easy to look back and see the servant as the messianic incarnate God who comes and takes on flesh. And so let's begin with prayer, and then we will read Isaiah chapter 42 and jump in. Father, help us as we begin this introduction to this Advent season where we focus more specific attention on the Incarnation. And I know in in the midst of the holiday and the chaos, sometimes we get lost, sometimes we get depressed, sometimes we get confused, sometimes we get sucked in too far. I pray that in the midst of all this, in the focus, attention on the carnation, and specifically as we gather over the next few weeks on the, on the servants, that you would take the good news of Jesus and, and implant it deeper into our hearts, that we would see this servant and what he is doing for us as his followers and rejoice and to celebrate and to worship him because of it. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1 says this, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight, and I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout. He will not cry out or raise his voice in the streets. In a bruised reed, he will not break. In a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, He will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged until he establishes justice on the earth. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. The very first word in the Hebrew and in the NIV, or depending on which translation, could be behold or hear. The idea here is that there's something new taking place in Isaiah chapter 42. And we just jump back two verses, and what was going on at the end of Isaiah chapter 41? At the end of Isaiah chapter 41, if you look at verse 28, God is talking, and He says, I look, and there's no one, no one among the gods to give counsel, no one to give answer when I ask them. See, they are all false. Their deeds amount to nothing. Their images are but winds and confusion. And God is going on a diatribe here against the nation of Israel because they are putting their trust in all of these gods. And he's saying to them, why are you doing that? There's all of these gods that you are looking to and they can't give you counsel. As he says early in the book of Isaiah, I know the end from the beginning. They know nothing. So why are you putting in your trust in all of these other gods? And more importantly, in coming in Isaiah chapter 42, they're putting all of their trust in these other nations' gods, all the while these other nations are doing what to them as a nation? 
oppressing them, victimizing them, doing inhumane things to them, like the prophet Jonah. Do you know why he hated the Ninevites? There are stories of this ancient time where the Assyrians, the Ninevites, would come down. They're not trying to take over Israel, by the way. They're just wanting to defeat Egypt. In order to get to Egypt, they've got to run through Jerusalem. They've got to run through Israel. And these people would actually skin the Jewish people alive and throw them on the sands to actually die. That was what the Assyrians were doing to the Israelites. This is why Jonah hated the Ninevites. And God is actually now saying to him, to Israel, why are you putting all your hope in these other gods? All the while, all these other nations are doing is just oppressing you and destroying you. And so God then remedies this situation and, in, and to put an end to all of the nations oppressing the people of God, and to put an end to an idolatry, Isaiah writes here, Behold my servants, whom I uphold. There is this remedy to the nations oppressing the people of God. There is this remedy to putting your trust in idolatry. And God's answer is the servant. God's answer is that I'm going to take care of everything and make everything right through my servants. This implies that the, the root behind all of the injustice in the world, in the nations, in our country, in our city, the root of all of it is idolatry. Putting your trust, your ultimate hope in things like a motorcycle, just kidding, Mike. Putting your hope and trust in things that are going to rescue you. And if that is not the servants, it will lead to division. It will lead to disunity. It will bring greater chaos. So, I, I hate to say this, but I'm just going to say it. Like, if you put all of your hope in the Republican Party, guess who hates you? The Democrats, and, and vice versa. Or you put all your hope in the Redskins, guess who hates you? This is like, not rocket science. Like, you put all of your hope in something, and you build it up so much, that in order to do that, you have to demonize other people. Christianity is the only thing that if you put all of your hope in, it'll actually produce love and unity throughout. And God is saying to the nation, stop oppressing the people and look to me. And he's calling Israel to stop worshiping the false gods and actually worship me. So you know this to be the case about the root of idolatry being the cause and the, the, cause and the source of all of division and chaos and disunity in your life, in your relationships, in your work. And the servant comes and says to you, Take root. Take, take up some time to think about what you actually live for. Because without the servant being the primary thing, it will disrupt all relationships. It will disrupt everything in your life. And this servant is going to bring remedy to the nations. But he also is very special in the sense that God the Father says about this servant, I am going to uphold him. He is my chosen one in whom I delight. There's, there's three things there I'm going to have to walk through quickly with you. But number one, he's going to uphold him. 
He's going to strengthen him. He's going to actually give him the ability to do what he needs to do. He's going to be the chosen one. No. Should I? Yeah, let's just do it. Okay, like we talk, if you've been around the church for a little bit, we have this discussion about election or free will. Do I get to choose God or does God choose me, right? And some of you are just like, yes, 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 who cares? And some of you are like, no, 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 it's one or the other, okay? Whatever you say, what I want to tell you is that when we talk about those discussions, we always end with... I either get to choose to be saved or God chooses me to be saved. The end of every discussion is what? Whether or not I'm saved. And I want you to know something in Scripture, and here's another example of it, and I can go throughout all of Scripture with you, that chosen, the end of it, is not just being saved. If that was the case in this passage, God says to Israel, I have a servant who's going to come. I'm going to strengthen him, and I'm going to save him. What hope is that for Israel? What hope is that for you? See, the, the implication I'm trying to get you to see is that God chooses people to do something. God chooses people not just to have a right relationship, but in order to, have, in order to do something for God, you have to have that right relationship. Does that make sense? So I'm not saying that election or free will, whatever you believe, is actually not about salvation, but it goes beyond that. Why are you saved? Why are you called to be a part of the family of God? And as we've talked about all morning, you don't know what that is unless you know the story of God. But because the story of God in America is just get right with God, live a good Christian life, and go to heaven, we think that the end of election is just be saved. But here we have an example that where God uses the idea of being chosen, it's to do a certain task. And there is a servant that has been prophesied that is going to come and God is going to strengthen him to complete a certain mission, to complete a certain task. And in the midst of all of that, he's going to be one in whom the soul of God delights. Anyone think of where this passage is referenced in the New Testament. Anyone remember, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Father speaks this, this declaration of, of love and, and this delicate relationship that exists. And at the baptism, what happens next? Isaiah chapter 42, verse 2 happens. And I will put my spirit within him. Why was Jesus baptized? Not just to be an example. But at the baptism, he is actually being identified as the servants. Do you, do you connect that now? Why did Jesus go down to the river? And why did the heavens open up and this declaration of intent of, of love and delight upon a son... And why did the Spirit descend upon him? Because a servant is coming. And he's going to be strengthened by God to do a certain task, to do a certain mission. So the question becomes, what is that task? What is that mission that the servant is to do that God has chosen him to accomplish? Well, if you didn't catch it, it's mentioned three times in these verses. 
He will bring what to the nations? He's in faithfulness. He will bring forth what? He will not falter or be discouraged till He establishes what, church? Justice. Justice. Justice to the nations. Justice to the earth. Justice to the islands. When you look at the descriptions, it is justice to every place. Not just Jerusalem. Not just a little nation the size of New Hampshire called Israel. But a servant is coming who is going to actually bring everything that is sad, untrue, and make it joyful and happy to the nations. This is the mission that God is calling and commissioning His Son to accomplish. So, what is justice? This idea, this word justice in Hebrew is used over 200 times in the Old Testament. When I tell you that, I'm not going to walk all through them with you. Aren't you happy? I'm telling you, this is no small theme. This is a major theme in the Old Testament. If you read through the prophets, I'm not going to say this verbatim, but I'm going to say this. You can't really go a chapter without the word and the concept of justice and righteousness being demonstrated, talked about, or promised in the future. What does it mean when we talk about justice? Well, biblically, it means this. It means to give people the same care and the same protection. It means to give people the same punishment. It is this idea of equity. It is this idea that everyone is going to be treated the same. Injustice is when people are treated differently. Whether that be a gender distinction. Whether that be a socioeconomic distinction. Whether that be a race distinction. No matter where we go... We see in our society injustice across all of these levels and far more. And I just think this week, I mean, every time there's a school shooting, I'm like, when's it coming to Grassfield? And when is my kid going to be protected? Why? Because there is injustice that is constantly taking place in our society. And, And it seems like we think we're so protected from it, and yet we're not. This idea of justice for the nation of Israel is rooted in their Old Testament law in the book of Leviticus. It says, have the same rules, have the same justice for the foreigner as you do the Israelite. God was telling Israel way back then that the same way you treat each other is the same way you should treat people who are not like you. In the Bible, we call it a quartet of people that are regularly acted against in ways of injustice. In scriptures, we see them. They're the poor, the immigrants, the widow, and the fatherless. You see, these four people regularly having injustice against them, the poor, the immigrant, the widow, and the fatherless. And why are those people the ones who are regularly acted upon in having injustice done to them? Because they're all in places where they can't stand up for themselves. If you don't have a father in that society, you have nothing. If you are a widow, in a sense, in that society, you are 
very difficult to actually create revenue for yourself. In that society, the immigrants was looked down upon, the poor. I would say in Scripture and in our context, some of those are the same, some of those are different. But what I want you to know is that there are vulnerable people that our society preys upon and does injustice to. And so in the broadest sense, what is the mission of the Messiah? It is, in a sense, in a broad sense, okay, to bring societal order in which all the concerns of every humanity are treated equally. A society in which there is no justice is one where only the, rule, the rich, the powerful, and the mean use their ability to press down on those for their own advantage. So the divine justice that is coming through the Messiah is nothing less than the salvation of God defined in the broadest sense. And we're not speaking of salvation merely in what I want to call this privatistic relationship or forgiveness of your sins where salvation is just about you and you being right with God. No, I'm talking about salvation in the broad sense that God is coming to save everything in every structure, in every government, and to make it right. We're not talking about the other side either of just forcing people for food redistribution. We're talking about people who desire to help and to serve and to reach out so there is equity among people. This is the action of the Messiah that God has chosen His servant to do. And as long as the world seeks life-giving order in its own idolatry and deification of its own power and money and political parties and even your own family, it will continue to only do what it's only done since the time of Adam and Eve. Like, how dumb can we actually be? You look at human history, and no matter what government there is, no matter what structures are in place, the point of sin is that it will always lead to what? More and more injustice. And we think that we can overcome that. We think we can create a society. We think that our family can do this. We think our church can... You know what? The power of sin, if you look at throughout all of human history, is going to continue to show you you can't do it. So I'm just going to tell you something that's not very nice. Just give it up. Or maybe the first step is just actually acknowledge it that the only way that there's going to actually be true justice in the world is through a servant. And so it's no coincidence that the early church, their creed, their creed in the early church was this three words, Jesus is Lord. You want to know what the creed of the early church was? Jesus is Lord not Caesar. Okay? Let me, I'm going to stop there. Jesus will take care of everything. You follow him. We, we were talking about this, um, the build your kingdom here. You remember saying that song? And there's that little phrase that we are the hope on earth. And some of you are like, ah, Jesus is the hope, Right? I'm like, yes, he's the hope. But 
interpret that song, because I'm sure that's what they meant, this way. How is Jesus presently the hope on earth? Through the church. The problem with the church is when we don't have our hope in Jesus. And we begin to chase power. And we begin to chase the things of the world. And we begin to chase idols. And we begin to have this, I'm going to say it this way, your own privatistic relationship with God. Okay, if you're not in genuine, true relationships with God's people, you are not growing as a Christian the way you should be growing. And so God has chosen the servants to bring about this justice. But notice this. He's going to do it in a very strange way. In a very strange way. Why? Because look at these next few phrases. Like, he's not going to... Okay, let's just... Have we been talking about some grand things right now? Like, if you're Israel and you hear these things and you're like a faithful Jew, you're like, bring it. And now all of a sudden there's this weird little section that says this. He's not going to shout or cry or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. What in the world is that all about? Some of it is like culture. We don't talk about bruised reeds very much, right? Um, candles aren't like the primary point of our life. They're more like convenient and do they smell good. Not, I need one every day of my life to make sure I don't kill myself. But the very point that's being made by all three of these figures of speech is that all of the other self-acclaimed powerful rulers that Israel is aware of and who are claiming they're going to set up justice and they're claiming they're going to set up a kingdom and they're claiming they're going to bring the answer to God's people. How did they present themselves? Just a little take. They walked down the streets with a crowd of people saying, I am here to save you. They needed everyone to know that they're here. And what does that verse say? Jesus is not even going to shout or cry out. The King of Kings, who incarnated himself, is not even going to come down the streets of Jerusalem and declare to himself, I'm here. A bruised reed, he will not break. He is so different than all the other powerful rulers that these people are aware of, that this mighty one will not even break off the reed that is bent over in cracks. Rather, he's going to take that reed and support it and straighten it. Nor is his voice going to demonstrate the power of his actions. And he's not even going to puff out the most dimly gluttering lamp wick. He's going to trim it. And rest it more deeply in the oil. The point is plain. God's answers to all of the oppressors, to all of the nations, to all the people who claim for Israel that they're going to trust in them and he, they will bring them into God's kingdom. Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus does not come in arrogance. He doesn't come in pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come in noise. He comes how? Quietly, in humility, in simplicity. In church, that's power. 
True power is the ability to show humility and grace and kindness in your relationships. Is it much easier to get angry at people and to yell at them or to actually forgive them and love them and serve them again? You tell me where power is. And so people who come in power cannot actually accomplish what they're actually claiming to do because they don't have grace. They won't humble themselves. And it's interesting in Mark that this servant figure is called a servant because he came not to be served, but to what? But to serve. See, here's the uniqueness of Christianity. That God entered into His own story to be the one who would save His story. And He entered into that story for His people. I don't know about you. Do you feel like a smoldering wick sometime? None of you thought of that this week. But did you feel like you were like on your last little edge and someone just blew and you were done? Some of you feel like you're like a bruised reed and like the winds and, and the storms of life just keep knocking you, knocking you, knocking you, knocking you and you just keep slowly about to go under and drown. This is who Jesus came for. To give the people who are about to be snuffed out, the people who are about to drown in the ocean, the people whose reed is about to smack and die and fall to the ground, He came to give you hope. He came to give you the justice. He came to give you life. And this servant came in the most unusual way to do that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to read a little section that says what Jesus did. Then Matthew is going to say this. This is fulfilling, and then it quotes our entire passage. Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him and healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. Okay? So what did Jesus do? He withdrew, right? And he told everyone to shut up. Why? Because this was fulfilled, was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> Anyone make that connection yet? We just read that whole passage. But that servant passage, Matthew interprets it as this. Jesus telling everyone to withdraw and to be quiet. How is that a fulfillment of the servant passage? Anyone understand what I'm getting at? Like what my question is? You don't have to have the answer. But how is what we read a fulfillment of Jesus withdrawing and telling everyone to be quiet? The answer is here. Jesus is saying my kingdom is not going to come by force. It's going to come quietly. It's going to be like a mustard seed that you can't even see and it's going to go into this huge tree. Here's the premise. The Messianic servant came to bring justice to the nations by living a life of service to you for me so that we can actually follow him and be the hope of the nations, be the light of the world as we'll see next week. This Advent season, we look to a servant 
who is coming to bring justice, who is coming to make everything right, and he did it in the most unusual, non-ordinary means according to how humans operate. Now, part of this really stinks. Because how many of you want Jesus just to come back and start whipping people and destroying things and just make my life better right now, dang it? I said it out loud. You just keep it inside. Just tease him. But we want that. But there's hope. He's coming. He's going to make everything right. He's going to bring justice to you. He's going to bring justice to the people who trouble the people of God. And so just as he came the first time and Israel waited, and God fulfilled his promises to Israel, he's calling the church to wait and to be that hope. So Jesus, help us be that hope this Christmas season. Help us be people who can actually feel the presence of God by your Spirit, not letting us be a candle that goes out. But the very fact that we are still glowing is because of you. The very fact that we have not fallen and broken to the ground like a broken reed is because you are upholding us. You're strengthening us. So Jesus, we pray that you help us to hope in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.